This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. All right, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, being with us both here in the auditorium and via live stream. We're so glad you're here and listening and participating. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're returning to our series in 1 Peter. Be looking at a text today that is about the submission of a wife, or a, a wife being subject to her husband. Hold your applause. It's one of those texts, isn't it, that's just despised by our modern society. And we've taken a break from First Peter for Advent, the new year. So we're going to do a, a little bit of review. Peter's writing to Christians who are living in a culture that isn't supportive of their faith. Sound familiar? That's why we're here. This is one of the themes that drew us to First Peter for a series. We're expecting our culture to be increasingly inhospitable to our faith. We're not surprised. That's, that's why we've landed in this letter. The very first word Peter uses for the believers in the churches he's writing, you may remember, was elect or chosen. And he wants us to understand that our life in this world needs to be lived in light of that truth that God has chosen us. He wants us to think about life in this world in relation to God. You're an elect exile, he says. God has caused you to be born again. You are a citizen of his kingdom an alien in this world. He understood the church to be God's suffering people who have no place for rest in this world. Suffering and persecution actually confirm who we are, according to Peter. When we read the letters in the New Testament, this is for everyone. We begin with doing our best to understand the original intent of the author. We try to understand who he was writing to and why he was writing them so that first and foremost, before we try to apply it to our lives, we try to understand what was he saying to them because that's really foundational. I've heard it said it's good for someone that's teaching God's Word to think the author of the letters in the back. And when you're done with your sermon, you want to be able to look him in the eye and him go, that's, that's exactly what I meant. So we want to find that out. Peter here is addressing women who have come to believe the good news about Christ, and they live in a pagan culture. That means a culture that doesn't believe in God, doesn't know about Jesus. And they now find themselves married to a man who is not a Christian, who doesn't believe, and it's difficult. Jesus is the supreme example, he teaches us, of someone who suffers for doing good. And that's what's going on in the lives of these women. And Peter knew that their, their situation was difficult. 
And he's addressing them. And they, as they read this letter, would have known Peter is caring for them. He's seeking to encourage them. They would have been comforted. They would not have despised these verses. So now let's read God's inspired holy word this morning. Beginning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that it, even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah bade Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That is God's holy word. I think our main point today, and it's really for everybody, is we're called to hope in God and obey by faith. We're called to hope in God and obey by faith. Charles Darwin wrote his now famous The Origin of Species in the 19th century at a time when the conventional wisdom of scientists who studied nature included a biblical worldview. And that's why Darwin is famous, because he went against the grain, and why he waited 20 years as he thought about his theory of evolution before he published it. He went public with it. Because it wasn't, believe it or not, politically correct. Michael Denton in his book, Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, says Darwin himself was perfectly aware of the tremendous implication of the claims of the concept of evolution by natural selection, which eliminated the hand of God from the design of life. His own religious beliefs had been gradually eroding as his belief in evolution had grown. He must have seen that the elimination of meaning and purpose from human existence which was the inescapable conclusion of his position, was for man, including his wife, a profoundly disturbing reality to accept. The elimination of meaning and purpose. 
Darwin had a very close relationship with his wife, and she wrote him a letter to explain her concerns about the path he was on and where he was going. She knew what he was thinking, and she thought he was wrong because he wasn't allowing truth from God to influence him. And she said, if, if these things are true, they are likely above our comprehension. And she was trying to get him to humble himself and recognize this. She said, it seems to me that the line of your pursuits may have led you to view chiefly the difficulties on one side and that you've not had time to consider and study the chain of difficulties on the other. Don't think that it's not my affair. I'm your wife. Everything that concerns you concerns me. And I should be most unhappy if I thought we did not belong to each other forever. At the bottom of the letter, Darwin wrote, When I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this letter. My point is, it's an illustration of our text. This was a winsome wife watching, his, watching her husband steer the world in the wrong direction and trying to win him over. Imagine. But also, I just want to say to everyone, if you despise this text today, just understand, women who apply this verse in their lives are Christians. And they believe that God is the creator. And they have a meaning as a result and a purpose. They have a different perspective. They have a different worldview. So try to understand. We think differently. Women today who hope in God and seek to apply these verses in their lives and marriages are simply trying to apply what they believe is the living God's truth in their life. They believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he instituted marriage. They believe that marriage, according to Scripture, is between a man and a woman, and they are different. And they have different roles that complement one another. So it's very different than our culture. So let's look at our text in light of that and talk about submission. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 12, this is the context for these verses. Peter says, he's talking to everybody, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when Jesus returns. In other words, they'll come to Christ. They'll be one to Christ. And then verse 13, chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter's exhortation to wives is, is one application of this. Marriage is a human institution. That's where we are in 1 Peter. I want to make three observ observations today from this text. 
The first I've already hinted at is that this is an expression of pastoral care. Peter cared about these women. They are suffering for doing good, and he's trying to help them. And they would have perceived that. Observation number one from this despised text is that this is an expression of pastoral care. And I would like to submit this sermon is an expression of pastoral care. The theme of Christian submission is now being applied to the marriage relationship. Verse 1, likewise, likewise, in the same way. So he's picking up on something he's been writing about. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is going to address husbands in verse 7. We'll talk about that next week week. That'll be a lot more fun. His stress with both, though, is not on their rights in marriage. It's on their responsibilities in marriage. And more space is given to the wives because many of them had husbands who were not Christians. And it was a very difficult situation. Some were opposed by their husbands. Imagine And Pastor Peter cares about them. So he gives more space to them. And they appreciated it. They were grateful. The power of the gospel goes into the world. And it doesn't always save the husband and the wife. And in this case, it just saved the wife. One commentator says, No specific group of members in the church was more in need of understanding, warm encouragement, and wise spiritual counsel than these women. That's why these verses are here. That may change your perspective. You may not agree with the verses, but that's why they're here. It's pastoral care. These women did not enjoy in their cultures high social standing, When a a wife accepted a new religion, went in a different direction, you can imagine what that would have been like. It caused serious trouble for her. And and it's going to be striking when we see that his primary concern is not to raise their social status. His primary concern is to give them a strategy to win their husband to Christ. Second observation. Submission is a Christian virtue. It's for everybody. Submission is a Christian virtue. Our culture doesn't value submission from anybody. But for Christians, it is something we value. We want to be submissive. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is the wife's responsibility as biblically defined. The roots of this teaching that you find throughout the New Testament comes from creation, okay? This is not a non-biblical idea that's just come from some culture along the way in church history. 
It didn't come from a past culture. And it can't be changed by a new culture. It's rooted in creation. It's grounded in the order of creation. So these complementary roles of biblical headship for the husband and biblical submission for the wife. Peter got this from the Old Testament account in Genesis. It's despised in our, our modern society. But it's biblical. This text in no way says that a woman is inferior to a man. If you think that, you're reading into the text. That is not what it says, not what Peter thought, it's not what the women thought, not what they got from this text. You're ignorant of the purpose of the letter if you think that. This is about how the, the marriage relationship is ordered, how it's governed. Be subject, notice, to your own husbands. Women are not called to submit to all men. A wife is called to submit to her own husband. The idea is she loves this man and he loves her. That's the context. There is authority there. All Christians are called to submit to authorities in different ways. It's a, it's a virtue for every believer. Jesus was subject to his parents, we learn. Every human institution has responsibilities for its government. There, there must be someone with final authority. Every human institution needs to be governed. It needs to be led. Every participant has a responsibility. Someone has authority. Someone submits to that authority. Showing respect to those in authority is a responsibility we all have in some way. The only person I can think of was Queen Elizabeth. I don't, I don't know if she submits to anybody. But submission is also consistent with equality in importance, in dignity, in honor. You can submit and still be equally important. The home is a human institution. God has assigned leadership in the home to the husband. And from a biblical perspective, the husband and the wife are equal in importance, in dignity, in honor. And it, it, it is screamed from this text if you just study it. A definition of submission from John Piper, the disposition to follow their own husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. The disposition, a wife's submission to her husband, the disposition to follow their own husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. They don't want to resist. They want to encourage their leadership. And the implication is it's a joy to follow your husband, your own husband that you love, you're married to. It's a joy to follow his leadership. Obeying the Lord by faith 
leads to joy. It leads to joy. There's no sense here that this is oppressive. People who open God are not expecting grief if they obey the Lord. Peter is not teaching these wives, not building them into their husbands because he thinks, ah, this is going to oppress them. He thinks it's going to bring them great joy. He wants them to win their husbands. Submission doesn't mean agreeing with everything your husband says. <laughs> these women are serving Christ. Their husbands aren't. It's the most important question they face, and they disagree. It doesn't mean that a wife doesn't try to change her husband, influence her husband, like we saw Charles Darwin's wife. This text is all about how you get that done, how you see them change. Lays it out here, verse 1, so that. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is casting a vision that this could have a saving effect. It could be a means of grace. He's evangelistic. He wants them to come to Christ. He wants them to be one for Christ. Now, I'm going to pause by way of application just for a minute because I really felt the Lord wanted me to share the gospel with non-Christians today. So you may be watching via live stream. I know this is going out all over the world and millions of people are watching. <laughs> For all those of you here today, I, I want to try to win you to Christ. So we, we are plopping down today, we're, we're talking about adoption. We're talking about submission. Yeah, amen. That was good. Okay, I usually like it quiet, but that was good. That was, a, that was a good amen. We're, we are, this is a Sunday where the difference we have because of Christ is on display. And so, I just want to preach the gospel. And I want to try to win you to Christ. In the context of Peter that's his focus. These wives are suffering for doing what is good, and his focus is on winning, gaining their husband for Jesus Christ. Christians care about all kinds of suffering. We care about suffering. We care about poverty. We care about hunger. We care about crime and disease. But we especially care about eternal suffering. Romans 2 says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, like these husbands in this text, but obey unrighteousness, there will be 
wrath, and fury. Hell is a reality, according to the Bible. There are two alternatives, eternal life or eternal wrath. The depravity of human hearts is not just storing up wrath. That is wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed now. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. All are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. And therefore, Paul says in Romans 3, every mouth is stopped. The whole world is accountable to God. And wrath is coming. The greatest peril facing every person in the world without exception is the righteous wrath of God. This is the number one problem threatening mankind and it's never in the news. And the only time you're going to hear about it is in a church or on a street corner with an evangelist proclaiming God's truth from his word. In his great mercy, God himself stepped into history in the person of his son and took on a human nature so that he could endure for us his own wrath and bring us to himself in everlasting joy. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. We've already read it this morning. Verse 24 in chapter 2. Of First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. This is the love of God, unspeakable love of God, substituting himself for us, bearing our condemnation. This is the good news. Christ was, was punished. Our sin was punished. And the wrath we deserve was justly satisfied. It's the wisdom of God, the glory of God on display. Everything we need for this great salvation was accomplished for us by Jesus. It can't be earned by good deeds. There's only one way to be saved, and that's to believe, to trust in Christ alone. So I've been praying for you this week. Those of you who are not Christians, I've been praying that God would give you the gift of faith. So if he does, if, or if you just want to talk more, if you just feel inclined, I want to hear more about this, you're watching via live stream, contact the church office. We will mobilize millions to serve you. I'm exaggerating, but it'll feel like millions. I don't want to scare you off, but we will be faithful. Just contact the church office. If you're here this morning, we have members of our outreach team will be at the Welcome Center. They'd love to talk to you. You can always talk to any of the pastors. We hang out until the last door shuts. Sunday is the mother of all days, and we are here to serve you if we can. Notice that Peter says the behavior of a wife in the midst of suffering unjustly may be a means of grace in their husband's life. It's the same for all of us. The wife's Conduct, he says, could achieve what the preaching of the gospel without a word. So 
He's not saying they don't need the word of the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They haven't responded. And now without a word, they can be won by the conduct of their wife. Peter believed in the power of an example, a Christian transformed life being lived in front of people. That's not just for these wives. That's the context of 1 Peter. If, if the husband doesn't come to Christ, Peter says he may be won by this wife's silent demonstration, powerful demonstration of the grace of God in her life. He may be won by it. Can you imagine something more encouraging to these wives? And yet these verses are despised. This is such a skillful pastor. This is such a, a man that cares about these women. One commentator, Edmund Hybert, says, Instead of trying to coax and argue her husband into becoming a Christian, she'll be more effective by quietly living out its saving power before him. His conscience will be forced to admit the presence of a divine power in her faith that he is often mocked. It is her translation of the gospel into life right before the man's eyes, which proves a telling witness. True for all of us. Augustine was, was a church father. You may have heard of him, fourth century. So shout out to Kent Caps. He loves Augustine, loves the confessions. And Curtis loves them too. I, I'm not a big fan, but I commend it to you because, boy, there are some folks that just love Augustine and his confessions. And he has a famous mother named Monica. She was a woman who hoped in God. When he wrote his confessions, he was talking all about his inner life, and it was dominated by one person, his mother. He rejected Christianity until later in his life, but his mother never gave up. She preached the gospel to him repeatedly. She prayed for him. She suffered when he turned away from God and, and wasn't going to follow him. She was grieved. During his years of rebellion, Augustine wrote that God wasn't silent. He spoke to him through his mother. In the confessions, he, he's writing to God. And he says, whose words were they but yours, which you were chanting in my ears through my mother, <laughs> your faithful servant. She witnessed to him. She prayed for him. She wept for him. Augustine said, more than mothers weep when lamenting their dead children. At one point, she kept going to this bishop in the, in the church, trying to get him to talk to Augustine. And because she just was wearing him out, he, he famously comforted her by saying, Go, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. In other words, I, I give you my word, God's going to save him. And she took that as the word of the Lord and stopped bothering the bishop. And Augustine came to Christ. You might, you might think of Monica as the mother of 
the great Augustine, but it's been said that it really Augustine should be remembered as the son of Monica. <laughs> he would totally agree with that. Ambrose, who was a famous church father and involved in Augustine coming to Christ, he praised Monica. Augustine wrote that whenever Ambrose saw him, he often broke out in praise of Monica, congratulating me on having such a mother. She was married to a man named Patricius who wasn't a believer. And her response to him is, a, is an illustration. It's an example, 1 Peter 3. He was given to anger. He was unfaithful to her. But she loved him. She stuck with him. Augustine wrote, she rendered obedient service to him. For in this matter, she was being obedient to your God's authority. She tried to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her virtues through which you made her beautiful. Just, he's just preaching 1 Peter 3. So that her husband loved, respected, and admired her. And before he died, her quiet witness won him to Christ. Became a Christian. Augustine called him a brother in Christ in the church and then said he was a fellow citizen in God's kingdom. It's a powerful example. It's a powerful example for all of us of how we can win the world to Christ. The third and final observation is that the Bible redefines beauty, obviously, when you look in these verses. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, they're, they're seeing something. They haven't responded to hearing so now they are seeing. And this wife is a means of grace. Her husband's conversion. How he's, he's an eyewitness of the transforming effect of the gospel in somebody's life. He's watching and observing. He sees evidence of powerful grace. He sees it. He sees her conduct. He knows he's been unfaithful. He knows he gets angry. And he watches her response. And he, he sees something. And it leads him to Christ. It's attractive. It's beautiful. Pure conduct. We're all called to live pure lives. Every Christian is called to live a pure life. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. You could describe progressive sanctification or becoming more like Christ. You could describe it as becoming more pure. Paul teaches about women's ministry in Titus 2. And he says his, his emphasis is on the older women, training younger women to be pure. This isn't just purity in the sense of sexual purity. It's a character quality. It's an innocence. It's an innocence that's refined by trial and test. And it, it, a pure life will not fail. To influence people and win them to Christ. 
So he says in verse 3, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. A different beauty with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This should remind us of what we talked about for pastors last week when we had our ordination service. We talked about Jesus describing himself as gentle and lowly. This is just Christian. It's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter's a brave pastor. Now he's telling women how to dress. He's trying to tell them how to make themselves attractive to their husbands. And this is authoritative. He's making a command. This is an imperative. He's, he's saying, don't, don't focus on the outside. Focus on the inside. His emphasis is not saying, don't wear this and don't wear that. That's, that's not what he's saying. It's not prohibiting. He's, he's talking about biblical values. He's preaching biblical values. Don't, don't let your adorning be external. Braiding of hair. Apparently in these cultures they would spend hours braiding their hair. And Don't let it be putting on gold jewelry. You talk about bling. And these guys apparently had just gold chains and rings and bracelets and gold. They had fancy hairdos and then they had gold combs and and their clothing was extravagant often. And that's how the women of the world were doing it. That was what was fashionable. Peter's saying, don't do that. Do this. Don't follow that example. Do this example. Verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight, God's sight is very precious. It's, it's beautiful. And it's infinitely more valuable than all this, the externals that others were focused on. Verse, verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. This is how the holy women, you read about in the Old Testament, who hoped in God, that's how they adorned themselves. By submitting to their own husband. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. You get her legacy, her mantle, if you do good. And you're respectful like that. And you don't fear anything that is frightening because you're hoping in God. They, they trusted in God. They hoped in God. And that's why they submitted to their husbands. That's why they were respectful. When, when they're calling him Lord, it's Lord with a little L. It's like saying, sir. It's just a, he's just explaining how, to, how they would be Respectful. So Sarah, this is one example from her life that he pulls from the Old Testament to say she called him sir. She called him Lord. Like sir. She was respectful. And it came from the fact that she 
hoped in God. Her respect for her husband was based in her hope in God. And that's why it was beautiful in God's eyes. What makes a woman beautiful is that they live their daily lives with the expectation that God is going to fulfill his promises in their lives. That's what's going on. That's why she's submitting to her husband. Because she's trusting God. She's hoping in God. She believes his promises. Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She's not frightened by, by anything. There are many things that are frightening. It could be frightening to these women, sinful husbands who threaten and intimidate their wives, sinful husbands who are lazy, who are irresponsible, who are selfish, unkind words from society around us, from friends and family, mocking you for trying to apply God's word in your life. It's frightening. Circumstances that are bad. Adversity, lies that say God isn't faithful. God isn't good. God isn't powerful. He isn't able to fulfill his promises. All this is frightening. But women who hope in God, they trust in God. And they don't allow these things to terrify them. Again, Edmund Hybert says, The meek and quiet spirit of the Christian wife has nothing in it of weakness, irresolution, or cowardice. She will not allow the threats of an unbelieving husband to scare her out of her Christian faith. That, that is courage. Those are the heroes. Those are the ones. These women that are submitting to their husbands, they're the ones that aren't cowards. They're the ones that are brave. It's a different perspective, isn't it? It's a biblical worldview, but that's where courage is. And it's beautiful. Carolyn Mahaney and her daughter Nicole Whitaker have a book called True Beauty. It is free for every woman this morning. If you're here with us, if you're watching via live stream, just send us a note. We'll send you one. It's free for you today in the lobby. Carolyn writes, if we adorn ourselves with a gentle and quiet spirit by responding to trials, temptations, loss, and fear with an unshakable trust in God, we will achieve a rare and real beauty. This beauty is very precious in the sight of God. The phrase means costly, and it's set in sharp contrast to the costliness of the immodest woman's extravagant adornment. It's very precious in the sight of God. Many godly women do not despise this text. Many of you are in this room this morning. Peter wanted to encourage those women that he was writing to. I trust that our attention to this text this morning encourages you. It's our goal. That's what we're trying to do, is encourage you. When you live like this, you show 
the reality of the grace of God in your life. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.